greatest exchange, uh, glory for humanity. Like, it's impossible for me in my finite mind to fully give you a picture of what that is because, you know, we don't have the mind of Christ. And, and so from a finite perspective, I'm trying to talk about that's something that's infinite. It's very challenging to try to articulate any thought that Christ or the Father God might have been thinking. I could never do that. So these thoughts that are coming from me are ones that come from my thinking. And so as we, we look through this next journey of, on this series, The Greatest Exchange, we're going to see what that means to us, what, 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 how we benefit from this exchange of God giving up glory in heaven and coming down to earth and becoming a human being. So when an exchange takes place, someone receives something and someone else gives something. And so in this case, this exchange, God gave his son Jesus, offered him to humanity, and because of that, we receive potentially this incredible free gift called salvation. There have been a lot of exchanges that have taken place in your lifetime and my lifetime. But there was one that happened in 1914 that diaries and history books record that, quite frankly, was unbelievable. Like, if you've studied history or a student of history, something took place in the First World War that has marked our pages of history in a very unusual way. During the 1914 year of the First World War, something happened between the English and the German soldiers that can only be described or explained as simply, like, unbelievable. It was Christmas Eve in 1914 during the First World War, and there was this thing called the Great Christmas Truce that took place, like, had never happened before, has never happened since. Yet on this battlefield were two armies lined up against each other in the trenches, both fighting against each other in the middle of the battlefield from the trenches of the English and the trenches of the Germans. Both armies began to sing the song Silent Night. One in German, one in English. And so the, the diaries that have been found and the letters that have been written and the historical accounts of this night record soldiers writing down what took place on this battlefield where the great Christmas truce took place. And then these letters and these diaries tell us that on Christmas Day, when light, when the sun rose that morning, that soldiers from both sides dropped their battle guns, dropped their weapons, and they walked to the battlefield in the middle of the first great war as we know it, the first world war. And what happened next is recorded in journals, it's recorded in diaries, it's recorded in the historical accounts of this great Christmas truce. German soldiers and British soldiers walked to the inside of the battlefield where bodies were dead from fighting before and brought back to the trenches, walked and handed out their hands and extended a greeting to the very people that they were fighting against. And history tells us, and journals tell us, and diaries tell us that this exchange took place. This unbelievable exchange took place. Soldiers exchanged coffee, chocolate, tobacco, shoulder badges, and many other personal items. Now picture if you can, especially those of you who have served in the infantry. Picture walking to the battlefield, exchanging on Christmas Day, a truce was being called, and you were exchanging something that was personal to you with something that's personal to them with your enemy. 
History tells us that football matches began to build on the battlefield. Germans against the British. From the trenches, there was this moment in the middle of the First World War where both sides dropped their arms and had a moment of an exchange. Now, not everyone knew the truce or was up with the truce. And history tells us that some Germans didn't want the truce. So they shot British forces that began to raise their hands as they walked to the battlefield. Yet, in the midst of this world war, there was this this segment, this, this special divine place where an exchange took place and they dropped their weapons and they gave them something. And to record that, I want to show you what it might have looked like. Take a look at this. Jenkins, Oakley. No. Otto. Pleased to meet you, Otto. Freut mich. Rose, she's called. Um, it's schön. Um, it's schön.
powerful moment in our history that seems like too good to be true. Like, how is that possible? How could an exchange like that took place in the middle of a battlefield, in the middle of the First World War, that has been recorded in the annals of history and talked about for literally almost 100 years. That exchange is like unbelievable. Like for us as human beings watching that, there's a part of us that wells up, something inside of us welled up. Each time I watch that, there's something inside of me that smiles, something inside of me that says, there's something really good about that. In fact, there's a lot really good about that. Yet, we can watch that and we can be moved from the bottom of our hearts, even like the, 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 the lowest part of our hearts, even the parts that have maybe have been shut off and callous for a while. Maybe, maybe you haven't let people in. Like, and something about that really moved us deeply to think, man, that, now that is an exchange of gifts that, that should happen. Like, that's, that's unbelievable. Yet, we all know this. Like, and you even know what I'm about to say. Like, you know that I'm going to say that there was a greater exchange where Jesus left heaven, and exchanged his life for us. And yet, even when I tell you that, does that move you the same way? Like, like do you find yourself like grappling almost with tears because Christ left glory as we know it and clothed himself in humanity and exchanged life for death? Like, does that still move you? Or is that just like, well, yeah, that happened, yeah, 2,000 years ago, it's Christmas, and... Or has something happened to us? Like, I'm bothered by this, by the way. I'm really bothered that, that we of all people who call ourselves Christ followers, where we've let the story of Christmas become just that, a story that no longer has its effect on us. Like, shouldn't we be the ones that take this story to the masses and tell people what Christ did for us? Like, Shouldn't there be something in us that every day that we arise and we breathe air into our lungs, that shouldn't there be something that happens to us as fathers and mothers and children and, and people on earth? Like, shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't we be moved by that every single day of our life, especially those of us who know Christ as our Savior? Like, shouldn't that just put a bounce in our step or at least cause us to say, praise the Lord for another day of life? Yet, does it? Like, my fear is this. That in the Christian church today, that we've taken so much for granted. Like, this incredible eternal gift, this exchange that took place in heaven, where Christ left glory and came to earth and stripped himself of royalty because we needed salvation. And the truth is this, we had nothing to give back to God. Nothing to give back in return for that. I pray, I really do. And this week I was praying, Lord, help us not to be the church. Help us not to be the church that just takes for granted the miraculous gift exchange that took place on Christmas. Like, it bothers me. Like, does it bother you that Christians don't, aren't moved by that? My hope is this, throughout this journey of messages, that somewhere in the middle of it, that something happens in your heart afresh and anew, like, and that you're open to it. Like, 
Like, all of a sudden, the same joy that you felt when that original exchange took place, when you found Jesus Christ or Jesus found you, you use the terminology, you know what I mean. Like, do you remember, like, when you got saved? Do you remember what you were saved from? Like, do you remember that moment where you realized, like, wow, this is, this, this is the best decision I've ever made. My hope is this, that we renew the joy and awe of our salvation. Wouldn't you like to have that renewed? Please, I pray that we allow that to happen through this series. Grab your Bibles, and we're going to unpack this exchange today and turn to John chapter 1. And if you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Our ushers will be glad to put one in your hand. Turn to John chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 14 to 18. John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. If you don't own a Bible, take this Bible home. It's our gift to you from Grace Community Church. John chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 14 to 18. I'm going to ask you to do something. This verse might be familiar to you, but I'm going to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to renew the awe and wonder of this verse. Renew the awe and wonder of Christmas. Renew the awe and wonder of this exchange. Stand with me and we'll read it together. John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. Would you read it out loud with me, please? Ready, read. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Any amen there? Amen. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. You may have a seat. No one has seen God but the Son who has made him known. The Word became flesh, it says, and made his dwelling among us. Jesus, the greatest exchange, basically was a new mailing address for the King of kings and Lord of lords. Picture if you can. I understand this is my finite mind trying to describe a Godhead that's three in one. And I understand this. Now, I want to put it out there. I, I, I recognize that, that when, when we talk about time, it's different for God. Like when God was planning out, the three in one were planning out all the events of past, present. They just didn't like, it wasn't a point of time as you and I understand. But for the sake of understanding in our finite minds, let's go there. Because every thought that the Godhead thinks, they always think past present and future. Now imagine being able to do that. Like every thing, they can see it all too. Like he, he has already seen every event that you and I have ever done. He has already seen every struggle, everything that you, that, that, that you are walking through today. God, it has already walked and, and slid through the hands of an all sovereign God who is working it out for his best for you. Now imagine it, before you face it today, God himself has already allowed it to go through his hands. So it's not like you're gone through it alone today. 
He's already seen it. He's already answered it. He's already worked it out. And he says he's already prepared in advance everything that you're going to do to do good work. So while you're facing it for the first time, this should bring you great peace today. There is nothing that you'll face today. There's nothing that you'll face tomorrow. There's nothing you'll face in this lifetime that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords hasn't already run it through his hands. Is there one amen in the group for that? That's a powerful truth. Like if that's all you get today, Just keep thinking about that. Nothing I face today that God hasn't already worked it out for good for me. So while you were sleeping last night or lost sleep last night, while you were running these events and this uncertainty in your business, this uncertainty in your marriage, this uncertainty with your child, this uncertainty with your job, and you're wondering how in the world is that going to work, while you were tossing and turning, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords already has been there. And at the end of that, he promises to work it out for good. Any other amens for that? That is a powerful truth. Like, Let's just close the books, amen, go home, and just think on that all day. But there's so much more. So picture, if you can, Jesus and the Father seated on the shorelines of heaven, skipping stones across a pond that's perfect, bass that you've never seen before. It's a perfect day in heaven. Weather is sunny and warm. There's a fresh breeze brimming on the top of the water. Picture trees in full blossom having so much fruit on them that they're dripping from weight and there's low fruit hanging on them. Birds are chirping and monarch butterflies don't have to fly from one place to the other. They can just stay there and go from flower to flower. Deer are grazing in the meadow and squirrels can be seen jumping from tree to tree. Perfect setting. Angels are gathered nearby, whipping their wings to the tunes of the hallelujah chorus. Seraphim and cherubim are flying by, gazing at the splendor and awe and beauty and power of our God, the warrior king. Thousands and thousands of angels worshiping the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our Savior is having another perfect day with his father, Abba, Father. Father and Son hanging out by the pond and fishing. Oh, that's a good day. But somewhere in the midst of this conversation, before man was ever created, before earth took its form and shape, Father God had a talk with the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, about the future. And the master plan was laid out. So every jot and tittle was covered. Picture if you can. Like from Satan's fall from heaven to Satan's doom eternally in hell. Well, he'll burn forever and ever and ever. Any amens? Forever. Thousands of years just planned in a moment's time. Like, bam, there it is. This is what's going to happen. People with the names from Adam to Zeke. From Alyssa to Zebulon. Every person's name is mentioned. Every, every event that they'll ever do, every work that God has already prepared in advance of them has already been worked out. I mean, that's the mind of our God. Century after century plan from beginning to end. Then there's this silence. As the father begins to unfold a plan to bridge the gap from heaven to earth, from glory to humanity, from, from eternity 
in heaven to eternity in hell. From, from God to sin. This plan unfolds that somewhere in the midst of this planning process, this cosmos would be created, and it was good, Genesis 1.1. And people were created, and they were good. Yet, the tempter comes, as we know, in Genesis 3. And sin, for the first time as we understand it, happens in the garden. And now God says there must be an answer to this sin problem. But it must be a perfect sacrifice. And so year after year after year in the Old Testament, they kept bringing perfect animals, unblemished animals, to, to lay on the altar, to, to represent, to represent until the Messiah would come. Someone had to come. There had to be someone come to save the world of their sins. And so they're having this conversation. And the father looks to his son and said, you are the answer. Can you imagine that? And then the father reads this. Just listen to this. Listen. Because scripture was already written, past, present, and future in his mind. Our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God can understand and know the future. And so they open up Revelation 13.8. And for the first time in heaven, potentially, these words were spoken. And it says this. And all the peoples who belong to the world worship the beast. They are the ones whose name were not written in the book of life, which belongs to the lamb who was killed before the world was made. Which belongs to the lamb, which is Jesus, who was killed before the world was created who was slain, some versions say, from the foundation of the world. You see past, present, and future. You see, we see it as it it happening, and we would think zero A.D. Yet Christ was slain before the world, before the foundation of the world, because our God thinks past, present, and future. So there's this conversation. It's a glorious moment, and then all out of nowhere, the word killed and death rattles the hallways of heaven for the first time. In the early days of what that would look like for Jesus. Death is now a common word in heaven where before they had never heard the word. Angels hadn't heard the word death. They didn't know what death meant. They didn't know what killed meant. All they knew was Father God and Father Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they knew perfection at its finest. And now they're talking about words like conversations they've never heard before. Someone has to die. And as the Hallelujah courses were playing, there was a contrast taking place. Then it hit home for them. And it would be Jesus that they've worshipped. It would be like... What are you talking about? Like, they didn't understand that. And I wonder, as I think about this, did the angels go to Google and, and Google, like, death? Like, did they search up the word? You know, sometimes you think that somehow Internet is new to God. Like, he had, he had Internet way before we did. He has a better form. So did they go there and say, what's death mean? Was there, like, a buzz among the angels? Like, did, can you define death? I never heard of that word. What does it mean to be killed? And all of a sudden, they had articulate, because we know that they understand and they grow in knowledge. Did, did this knowledge, like, like, was it a moment for them? Like, what's going on? And 
Imagine fathers right here today. Now, I'm thinking from a finite perspective. Imagine you as a father, if you have children, and if you have a son. Imagine sitting with your son, telling him that you will not be together for the next 33 years. (laughs) Basically, that's what took place when Christ came. Because we know from Scripture that God could see him, and God sent angels to entertain and, and to help him. And he spoke to his father, and he prayed to his father. And yes, he was fully God and fully man. I understand all that. Yet there was this separation that took place, this physical separation. And there's this moment recorded that you've heard me say, but it's worth it. It's like the father just waiting to say something. Like he finally had a moment. Like he could finally say something. There was a break in this 33-year-old journey where finally Jesus was, was, was baptism. And, and out of heaven, we hear this, 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 it was probably loud. It was probably, probably bold. And it was, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. You see, all those conversations, as we understand, were absent for 33 years. Try to wrap my mind around that this week, and I often do. I try to jump in the text, and I know this is a finite understanding, and I know this is my thinking, but I was trying to think of what it'd be like with my boys. Like sitting with Josh and Isaiah and saying, We're not going to see each other for 33 years. That means I'll miss out on all the things that happen in your life, all the, the high school sporting events, the Potentially your marriage and probably grandchildren and graduations and teach them how to drive a car and drive it fast. (laughs) Making the saving catch in baseball and then hearing your son say, Dad, I really love her. I don't know if I could do that. Or teaching your sons, in my case, how to change oil and how to change brakes on a vehicle and how to change spark plugs and what a left-handed monkey wrench isn't. Witness them being married and being the proud dad at at a wedding. Knowing that I would miss a lot of father and son moments while the seat was vacant on the throne. How'd they spend their last hours together? Like, like if you knew your son was going to be gone for 33 years and you had no contact, like, how would you spend your last hours with your son? Like, you know, you would be counting down the days and 10 days, nine days, eight days, and that last day, I mean, you take off work and what, what would you do? Like, and then it's down to the last hours, the last minutes, which just like, I just picture me just holding on, just saying, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. You couldn't make me prouder. You couldn't make me prouder. I'm proud of you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And then having to let him go. You see, sometimes we remove ourselves from our God being an emotional being. You know, we have those characteristics because they're the attributes and we come from our God. This was separation, you know? It really was. Because he loved us. You see, Christmas is more than what you think it is. (laughs) It's a God who left glory to come and be a human on earth 
because someone needed rescued. Someone needed to come and save us from our sins. Through scripture, Jesus had these moments where he, he said these things about his father. And he says this in John 17, 24. Just listen to the tenderness. He's trying to talk about his father. And Jesus said this, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the foundation and the creation of the world. He's trying to tell his dad, it's going to be okay, dad. Like, you loved me. I know you love me. And the reason I'm here is because you love me. We had that conversation. And you loved me before the creation of the world. Can you imagine the conversation between the two as they see Christmas for what it really means to them? A son being born so that he could die and save the world. A father who loves the lost world enough to give his only son. Then Jesus says these words. Listen to these words. This is from the son to the father. In John chapter 10 and verse 17, Jesus said this. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. The reason my dad loves me, the reason my dad sent me, the reason I'm here is because I lay down my life for this world. I don't know about you, but that's heavy. Like, that's really heavy for me today. See, Christmas, from the Heavenly Father's perspective, is very different than sometimes how we see it. So John chapter 1 and verse 14, Eugene Peterson, in his translation of the message, he says it this way. Just listen. Here's what Christmas is. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's what Jesus did. He moved into the neighborhood. He changed his mailing address, and the word became flesh and blood. We use the word. It's a big, big word in theology. and Sometimes it's very confusing. But we use the word called the great incarnation. Like, I know what carnations are. So what's, what's incarnation? Or we say, Jesus incarnated himself. People often ask me, what the world does that word mean, incarnation? Well, we have carnivorous animals. They're flesh-eating animals. So Jesus enfleshed himself. Jesus enblooded himself. Jesus became flesh. He incarnated. We have carnal sins. We would say fleshly sins. And so the great incarnation, as we know it in Philippians 2, is Jesus enfleshed himself. Jesus enblooded himself. Jesus became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Why? So that we could understand him. Like, if he came back as, a, as, a, as not a human being, we wouldn't understand. He understood us. He, he, he was tempted in every way like we were. He lived the same kind of life that we live so that he could understand, so that he would know what we're going through. He, there wasn't anything that Jesus faced that you and I won't face. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says this in verse 15, chapter 4. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. Listen, think about that. Just this pull away. Like, pull away. Like, why? Like, would you send your son to have to face the temptations that you and I face to a world where most would reject him, spit on him, persecute him, and then kill him on a tree? Like, would you send your son to do that? 
but God did. Glory for humanity. He felt the full brunt of temptation. Imagine the change for him, setting aside the glory of God and now receiving the honor of a poor carpenter's son would get. And then, like, okay, I would just like, okay, God, can I have like one concession? Like, if I'm, if I'm Jesus, like, can I at least be born to a rich person? Like, seriously, like, can I, like, can I just like have, like, if, if I'm going to live down there, like, can you give me some comfort? Like, can I have, like, one choice in this matter? Like, I'll go, but can it at least be, like, here? And yet, look at his lineage. I mean, look at, look at Matthew chapter 1. Look, look, look at the lineage. Like, okay, this is the line that Jesus would come through. Can there be some royalty? Like, can it be people that people look up to? Can it be, like, like, like people that we know, like, like kings and queens? Like, I'm a king, so... Can I have a lineage that really, really, like, I'm proud of? Well, let's look at the lineage of where he came through. Look at Matthew chapter 1. If your Bible in the New Testament, it says the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. And this is his lineage. I mean, we'll just look at a few of the people. Look at verse 3. Like, here's where Jesus came from. This is the line that he would be born from through Mary. It says, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah whose mother was Tamar. Like, that doesn't sound bad, does it? Okay, I, that sounds good. Perez and Zerah and Tamar. But you know who Tamar was, by the way? She pretended to be a prostitute. Now picture this, women, picture. Pretend to be a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law. Now picture that. You're pretending to be a prostitute and then you go sleep with your father-in-law and then you give birth to twins whose names were Perez and Sarah, that's where Jesus came from. Like, that's his line. And then it gets better. I mean, look at verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was who? What's the mother? Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Anybody know who Rahab was? She was a prostitute. She was known as Rahab the harp. Like, that's the line that Christ is coming through. And then it says this in verse 6. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. That sounds great. All right, David and Solomon. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Do you know who Uriah's wife was? Her name was Bathsheba. Do you know who slept with Bathsheba? David did when he was married to someone else. And then he, he had Uriah killed and, and Jesus comes through that line. So you, you got, you got a, a, a prostitute who slept with her, with her father-in-law. You got Rahab who was a harlot. You got Uriah's wife who David slept with. That's where Jesus came from. They'd be like, okay, hold on God. Like, can I have something else? But here's the good news, and this is what, what, what's demonstrated through this passage. You see, when I read that, I'm encouraged. You might not be, but I am. Because I can say this to us today. Don't let your past dictate your future, because our God can bring great things through messy people. Any amens? 
He brought the King of kings and Lord of lords through a mess. He redeemed it, and out of that came Jesus. He did it humbly and quietly, too. In the great incarnation, in the great flesh and blood passage, chapter Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6, he says this. Now, listen, listen. This is what Paul says about Jesus. He said, he did not consider, now picture this, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. I want to say, are you kidding me? You give me 10 seconds of being God, I'm not going back. Seriously, would you? Like, he says he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Imagine you being able to be God for 10 minutes. Like, how many of you would say, I'm done? No, he says he, out of his humble love for the world, he did not consider that something to hold on to. I feel like I need to stop right now and just say, please, please, don't be those Christ followers who lose sight of this incredible exchange that took place. Don't be those people who are grouchy and grumpy at Christmas because you didn't get a sweater that had your name on it. (laughs) The only thing we have to offer in exchange for our salvation is our sin. Like, think about that. Like, Jesus gave us salvation. You know what we gave back? Well, (laughs) here's my sin. That's all we have to offer for salvation. Like, it's a free gift. We can't buy it. We can't earn it. We could never do enough to get it. And so the only thing that we offer Christ in exchange is our sin. Now listen, where are you going to get something like that outside of Jesus Christ? Nowhere. In Philippians, the great incarnation, the great flesh, incarnate, carnivorous passage, he made himself nothing. The God of the universe was born with zero notoriety and little fanfare. In fact, there was no birth notice where he was born or in the Jerusalem news that said, royalty has arrived, the king is here. In fact, Herod tried to kill him with baby genocide. So picture the God of the universe downsizing his position to become an alien on the run with a teenage pregnant or a mother who gave birth. He humbled himself and he left glory to die. You see, when you and I look at a manger scene, we should be reminded of what Christ exchanged for that seat. <laughs> It was truly in humility. I mean, how else do you explain it? He loved us enough, and then he humbled himself to do it. You talk about humility. This was the epitome of it. The king of kings and lord of lords, the creator of the universe, reducing himself to be born to a woman on planet Earth. They didn't even have like a, a reveal party. Like, wouldn't it have been awesome, an ultrasonogram? Like, at least God, like, when they do the ultrasonogram, show Jesus in there and he's got a crown on his head. Like, like there he is. No, they didn't do that. In fact, they had to run and hide because there was a death notice on his birth certificate. Please, when you and I sing away in the manger, we ought to be on our knees in deep appreciation His king-sized bed was a manger. 
I wonder if we need to work on our entitlement agendas. That Philippians 2 incarnation passage, the flesh and blood passage, says that we should have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. We shouldn't look after the interests. We should look after the interests of others better than others. We should have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Yet the minute you and I are demoted at work, get cut from a sports team, get left out of a decision-making process, get passed over for a job promotion, don't get credit for a project, or for heaven's sake, someone spells your name wrong in the newspaper. We have a fit. Yet Jesus did all this plus took a flight to earth in economy with a death certificate in hand. That John 1 passage says that we get to live off the generous bounty of grace, grace upon grace. By the way, this gift that's given to you and me, it was never meant to stop with us. That's where it all goes south for us. Like, somewhere along this journey, I don't know where, some of us have believed a lie that, this, that somehow salvation stops with us. And somewhere along this journey, we've forgotten what, what the salvation gift did for us. And somewhere along this journey, we've gotten so busy with stuff and making decisions, and building empires, and building companies, and building children, and, and, and building lives, that somewhere along this journey, we forgot that we're supposed to be building people who need Jesus. Like, we're supposed to be sharing the good news. We're supposed to take this gift, not take it, hide it away. We're supposed to put it out in front and say, hey, there's a great gift out there, and his name is Jesus Christ. Anybody want it? That's why Paul, he tried to, he tried to, I mean, Paul, he tried to tell us in Romans 10 and verses 14 to 17. Just listen, he's trying to tell us, listen, just listen. Just imagine Paul saying this to us today. But how can people call for help if they don't know who to trust? And how can they know who to trust if they haven't heard of the one who can be trusted? And how can they hear if no one tells them? And how is anyone going to tell them unless someone is sent to do it? Listen, it's got to be more than an act of kindness. It's got to be more than you doing something physically. We must tell them. Someone told you. So this is my prayer this Christmas. That even though Christmas wasn't a white elephant exchange for Jesus, the exchange that we can give someone else could revolutionize their life because of Jesus. My prayer is this, that we will take the greatest gift ever known to mankind and we will tell our brothers and sisters, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, everyone. What would happen? Like, what would happen if we renewed the wonder and awe of salvation? What would happen? Here's what I know to be true. This is what I know to be true. Christmas is the time when people are more open to receiving the free gift of salvation than ever. Listen, I know it from personal experience. Statistics, books are written about this stuff. It'll even show you that 
more people trust in Jesus Christ at Christmas than any other time of the year, more than Easter, more than, than, than natural disasters, more than 911, more than death in their family. People are more open to the gospel at Christmas than any other time of the year. Why do you think that is? Because that's when Jesus came. Now listen, if they're open more, we have an opportunity. That means they're receptive. Their antennas are up. And Paul says, how will they know unless someone speaks it? So this is what I would love to see happen. Wouldn't it just be stinking awesome if we saw thousands come to Christ over Christmas? Wouldn't it be awesome if you just began asking? Listen, I also know this to be true. Many people are longing to find Christ because God has created this void in them that's longing to fill, and they've been filling it with other stuff, and they're empty. It's pleasurable for a while, but there are many people that you know, co-workers, friends, relatives, they're just waiting for you to ask. They're just waiting for you to invite. They're just waiting for you to say, hey, this is Jesus. I encourage you. I implore you. I beg you. Don't come alone on December the 21st. Why? Because on that Sunday, we are going to explain the gospel. We're going to tell them who Jesus is. And there are people in your path that need Jesus badly. Listen, give up your seat for someone who hasn't taken the exchange yet. Are you open to something like that? That's it. That's it. So I encourage you. It's pretty simple. Most people come to the local church gathering if they're asked. You ask people why they haven't come. Someone has invited me in a while. And you might say, well, I've been, I invited them six months ago. And they said, no, they're more receptive at Christmas than any other time. Wouldn't it be awesome if we saw something that we've never seen before in the history of this community where thousands of people bend their knees and bow in submission to Jesus Christ in this community there's a revival at Christmas. Any amens out there? It would be awesome. So it's simple. Husbands, you lead the way. You invite. Wives, you invite. Brothers and sisters, you invite. Singles, you invite. Listen, get on your phones, text, send mail, Whatever it takes, just start inviting. Say, hey, I've been thinking about you. God placed you on my heart. Would you join me? Now listen, this might mean you might have to come to the 8 o'clock service. You might have come to the 11 o'clock service. You might have to give up the comforts of your little meeting group, lunch group that gets together. You might have to give up your small group huddles so that people come to Christ. Listen, this could be awesome. So Lord, that's my prayer. I pray for Holy Spirit revival in our hearts. I pray, God, that there would be this unusual, just unusual, 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 like that we, we walk away from that day and say only God could do that. And God, we will give you credit in advance. I pray for courage. You tell us in Proverbs that the righteous are as bold as a lion. I pray that we would set aside fear and that we wouldn't assume that people know that we're Christ followers, but we would tell them, I pray for revival like we've never seen so that the gift exchange that took place 2,000 years ago isn't wasted any longer. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next week.